everyone and welcome uh, to worship. We're so glad that you've already participated in worship with us and that we can continue by learning together as we, we look into God's Word. It was October the 14th, just over three years ago in 2012, that Felix Baumgartner, they call him Fearless Felix, okay, decided to skydive from 24 miles into space. I don't know. We may have a picture of Felix doing that. Yeah. And uh, this guy is amazing. And he became the first person ever to break the sound barrier in a free fall. Now, Chuck Yeager had broken the sound barrier decades earlier in a jet, but Baumgartner is, is jumping and just doing a free fall with a parachute. And so he reached speeds of 844 miles per hour as he started from 24 miles up. And um, when he finally pulled his parachute cord, he landed perfectly on the ground to the cheers and to the relief of thousands. How do you ever describe that? Something that no one has, at that point, ever done before. Now his record has already been broken, and many others are trying to break that record, and so it will keep on going. But how do you, how do you describe something that no one has ever experienced? Well, he tried, and when he was asked what that experience was like, he, he used a, what we call a simile in literature, he said, well, it's kind of like swimming without water. That probably wasn't a real good choice of simile because nobody's ever done that, right? So what is swimming without water like, Felix? Well, it's like jumping from 24 miles in the sky. And so you're caught in this endless repetition of similes and metaphors to try to describe something you've experienced that no one else has ever experienced. And that's kind of what John is doing here today in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. He sees a glimpse into the very throne room, if you will, of God and what's going on there, and he's stretching the limits of language inspired by God as he tries to describe that for us with the limits of language. Now, if you've been on this journey with us, you know that In the first three chapters, particularly chapters 2 and 3, as God's given a message to these churches, it's been mostly diagnostic. There's been very little prescription, very little treatment given or advice for treatment. Oh, there's been some. To the church at Ephesus, God gave the message, remember, repent, and return, Return to your first love. Do the deeds you did at first. To the church at Laodicea, he said, I'm knocking on the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and dine with that person. To the church at Sardis, he said, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So, so far, it's been mostly diagnosis, but very little Treatment, a little, but not much. But now God begins to shift. And when we come to chapters four and five, the Lord is more focused on the treatment. 
And the theme of today's message is fairly simple. It's simply this, whatever your problems, whatever you're going through, whatever challenge or hurdle you're facing in life right now, at least in part, worship is the cure for that. Worship is the cure. No matter what your diagnosis, no matter what the symptoms that are showing up spiritually, at least in part, the prescription is to worship God. Now, I know something about you. I got a little secret on you. I really do. (laughs) You didn't know it, did you? I got a secret on you. You know what I know about you? You're a worshiper. Some of you scoff and go, you don't know me. I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. I'm not sure I buy all of this or believe all of this yet. No problem. You may be of another religion, another faith entirely. No problem. I know something about you. You're a worshiper. And here's how I know that. Because worship is this built-in human reflex that all of us have to put our hope in someone or something and then to begin to chase after that. We do that from the time we're little children, in fact. We place our hope in something, and then we begin to chase after it. If we don't get it, we begin to scream and cry and throw a fit. And we do that in various ways through the course of our lives. We put our hope in something or someone. We begin to chase it. We begin to put our lives behind it. We begin to give attention and even devotion to it. But what many of us have found is that you can spend years chasing something that you hoped in. But if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, you may find yourself utterly disillusioned and discouraged. I don't care what you're going through today, Jesus Christ is worthy of worship, and Romans says that he's the one hope that does not disappoint. Now, with that is just a little foundation. I want us to dive right in, and we're literally going to cover two chapters, so the tour bus is going to have to move rather quickly. If your Bible is open or you can follow along on the screens, let's begin to look at it. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I'd first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. How provocative is that the secret door the portal and here's a throne with someone sitting on it he doesn't tell us yet who it is but we're quickly going to find out now if you underline in your bible i encourage you to underline or circle the word throne because throne is the key word really in both of these chapters the word throne in greek is used 17 times just in chapters 4 and 5 in fact you could argue it's one of the keys to the entire book of revelation it's used 46 times in the book of revelation 
So the focus here is the throne of God. And at the very bedrock of Christian theology is that there is a throne that represents the sovereign rule and reign of God. And just like fearless Felix Baumgartner, John is stretching the limits of language to try to describe for us what that is like and what he sees in this vision. So let's go on. Verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Isn't that intriguing? We'll return to that in just a moment and say a couple of things about it. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay, lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, what is this thing, this sea of glass around the throne? In the ancient days, the sea was considered a very ominous and dangerous place. It was uncontrollable. I mean, after all, people went out to sea and never returned. It was a place where storms could come up quickly and sink a ship, a place it was believed of horrible monsters and so on. So the sea is this fearful place, a place of evil. By the way, we're going to see in chapter 13 that the first beast described in that chapter, and there are two, but the first one comes, you guessed it, from out of the sea. That's where the beast comes from. And yet, this sea is not like normal sea. I would suggest to you that this sea, and it often represents this in Scripture, represents the heaving masses of humanity. Often that's what a sea kind of symbolizes in Scripture in the Old Testament. But notice how he describes it. It's not tumultuous and stormy. Rather, it's like a sea of glass. It's like Lake George. If you've ever been there in the morning, no wind, a perfectly calm morning before a single boat has ever cut the water, it is perfectly still. 
And John paints this picture of this throne where there's peace all around, perfect calm, and God is in control. That's the feeling he wants us to get. But what about these strange creatures? Have you ever wondered about them? He says they're in the center and around the throne here. Uh, Well, these creatures, and we're going to see them a lot as we go forward, these represent the fourfold division of animal life. The lion represents wild animal life. The ox, domesticated animal life. The one with a face like a human, human life. And the one like a flying eagle represents bird life. Sorry, the fish are left out here. Perhaps that's because he says in the final chapters, there is no more sea. Uh, But at any rate, fish aren't mentioned here. So they're rejoicing. Psalm 96, verse 13 says, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. And that's exactly what's happening here around the throne. Day and night, it says, they never stop worshiping God. And so what we see is they begin their song. We read that this next concentric circle, and by the way, if you're thinking about how this is laid out, I find it curious that is described for us from center to circumference. It's a very clear movement. He's going from the very throne of God in the center, and he's moving outward layer by layer as though there are concentric circles here going out from the throne, and he describes each concentric circle. He says there are 24 elders. Now, what in the world does that mean? represent. Lots of speculation. I would suggest it probably represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God. They're all there. And by the way, good news, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you're a part of that, those 24 elders around the throne. That means you're there. The Old Testament people, the New Testament people are all present in this throne room scene, all right? By the way, if you've been following us closely, you know that numbers are not arithmetic in the Revelation. In this apocalyptic literature, numbers represent ideas, And so that's what these numbers are representing, the complete people of God represented in heaven. And there is God in their midst, and they're worshiping him, singing and honoring and praising God. They take off their crowns. They bow down before the throne and worship. Now, I've said to you numerous times that the best way to understand this book is to kind of look back in the Old Testament. That's true. The best commentary you can have is just a good reference Bible. And so I'll not point out every reference. There are literally dozens of references right here in this one section to Old Testament things. But I do want to point this out for any of you who are eager, beaver kind of students of God's Word. A provocative study that you could do on your own would be to go back to the book of Exodus, chapters 25 through 30. If any of you are game for this, it would blow your mind, the detail. Exodus 25 to 30, 
is basically describing the same kind of thing you see here in heaven. Now, it's a description of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And it starts, of course, by describing that most holy place, the holy of holies in the middle. It moves out and describes the different layers that were represented in the tabernacle. And it's the exact duplication here of what you see in heaven. Oh, I want to camp out there for a while and say more about that, but the tour bus is moving fast. But the key to understanding this book is just to try to have a reasonably thorough knowledge of the Old Testament, and a lot of it will automatically come alive for you. So these chapters are all about worship. And as I said, worship is that built-in instinct to put your hope in something and then begin to chase after it. But I like the definition that Tim Keller gives, a pastor of a church down in New York City. Keller says, worship is seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth. That's biblical worship, and I think that's a good pithy definition of it. Seeing what God is worth and then giving him what he's worth. That's the kind of worship God desires. We set our eyes on his value. We're reminded of who he is, his character, what he's worth and worthy of, and then we respond properly to God's worth. Friend, I want to tell you, whether you realize it yet or not, that is a large part of the cure to any problems we may have. To see God as he truly is and then to respond appropriately to that. That'll solve our lukewarmness. It'll solve our problem of being asleep in the light. If our commitment has grown cold and waned, it'll solve that. It'll solve most of the problems that we have when we're reminded of his worth and then we just respond properly to that. But can I tell you what happens to so many of us instead? What so many of us do is we go on living our lives and we completely undervalue the worth of God. And so we rock around with all kinds of hurts, habits, hang-ups, all kinds of oppressive worries and fears and enslavement to all kinds of things that we don't really have to have, honestly. And it's all because we failed to see what God is worth and then begin to respond to who he is. About three years ago, an interesting story came out about a 19-year-old young man named Dakota Guerin. Dakota had been working in a woman's home in Oregon, and this woman had a very valuable collection of old coins worth way over $100,000, her collection of coins. And there'd been a lot of people going in and out, so she didn't know exactly who it might be, but all she knew was when the job was done, her coins were gone. Her valuable collection was missing. But do you know how they caught the thief? They caught the thief because he was actually spending these valuable coins at face value. He didn't realize what he had. He had no idea they were valuable. So he just saw a quarter and he just thought it was a weird looking quarter and he spent it. So 19-year-old Dakota Guerin took his girlfriend to the movies, for instance, and one of the quarters he used to pay for their tickets one of the quarters 
was worth over $100. And then when he went out later for pizza, one of the quarters he used to pay for the pizza was worth well over $18,000, just that one quarter. But Dakota, not knowing what it was worth, not knowing what he really had, was just kind of spending it at face value. And so he got caught doing that. He was charged with first-degree theft, and the news article reported it this way, and I quote, Garen has been charged with first-degree theft and is being held in jail on $40,000 bond, or about 75 cents. It depends on kind of how you look at it. And that's what we end up doing with life when we don't see God for who he truly is. We have this undervalued worth of God, and it affects everything. We struggle with crushing anxieties and fears and all kinds of issues that we don't really have to have. But it leads to a hundred lesser evils. Let me quote one other person, one of my favorite writers, A.W. Tozer. This is so good. Tozer simply says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. Tozer says the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you hear the word God because that's going to make all the difference in your life. Do you really understand who God is? Do you see his worth? Tozer goes on to say, a high view of God is a solution to 10,000 problems. And some of you know exactly what Tozer's talking about, don't you? Because you'd gone and you'd struggled and you had all kinds of issues and hang-ups and habits and things that were holding you back and chains that were binding you down and you tried everything in the world to fix it. But you discovered that you couldn't fix your problems. And then finally, one day by God's grace, you came to see who he really is. And you turned to him and gave it all to him. You saw what he was worth, and you began to line your life up and spend your life according to what he was worth. And my, what a difference he has made as he's changing your life from the inside out. That's what the Christian discovers when they see God for who he truly is. But we need to quickly move on here before we wrap up. And in chapter 5, this scene of worship goes on. John describes more of what he sees. Let's keep looking at it in chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. 
wow, John sees this scroll. He knows that inside this scroll is the trusted word of God that the church desperately needs. The fact that it was written on the inside and the out, and by the way, that often happened in that day. It was called an opisthograph when that happened. Uh, If you just didn't have enough room to jam, it's like you had too much to say, and that's kind of the message here. God's got so much he wants us to know, and so it's written inside and out. That's kind of the idea. But no one's worthy to open it, not the 24 elders, not the four living creatures. No one is worthy. So he begins to weep because he knows that inside that scroll is what everyone needs. By the way, John saw a lot of strange things in his vision. He saw a lot of devastation. He saw a lot of fearful creatures. He saw a lot of sad things, really. But never once does he weep except right here. And right here, he comes unstrung. He's weeping because no one can get in that book. Now, let me ask you a question. What could possibly be so important that John just weeps and weeps? And the idea there in the Greek text is that he's just in convulsions of weeping. What is it that's so important to John and the church that he just comes unstrung? It's a tragedy with a capital T that nobody can open it. (laughs) Is it who the Antichrist is? Is that what's in the scroll? Is it who shot Jr.? Is it who's going to win the World Series? Is that what's in there? Is it when Jesus is coming back? No, no, no. It's far more important than all those things. This scroll contains the very will and decrees of God. But more specifically, it contains the why of history. Now remember, the people who first received this, unlike us in America... They were suffering greatly. It's a small, persecuted minority being kicked around by this big beast called Rome who seems to be crushing the church under its heel. And John sees the scroll that has the answer to why in it. And apart from the person and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, history is an enigma, it's a puzzle. Christ alone has the key to the meaning of history, and it's resting right there in God's right hand. Think of that. What a picture. The whole story of human history is resting in the hand of God. What a simple and sublime way of picturing God's sovereignty over human history. It's right there in his hand in that scroll. And by the way, Christian, can I say to you today, because some of you are barely holding on, Can I say to you that all the confusion and all the consternation that you have from time to time and all the why questions, I I just want to say to you today, your destiny is also resting in God's right hand. And that's reason to rejoice. That alone is reason to worship God. He is worthy of your worship. But, But see, this scroll has been sealed up by our sin since the Garden of Eden. No wonder John weeps. But the drama keeps on building. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is triumph. He's worthy. 
to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then John says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And now we know clearly, if we didn't already, now we know clearly who he's talking about. The one who was slain. Think about it. John turns to see a lion, the king of beasts. Instead, he sees a lamb, one of the most vulnerable of creatures. And Jesus is both. This vision of Jesus shows us that he's the sovereign lion who rules the world, and he's the sacrificial lamb who saves the world from sin. That's the one we follow. That's the one who's worthy of our worship. Verse 6 goes on to say, it's kind of strange, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, what a strange verse. It's especially strange if you've been taught that the Bible is always, always to be taken literally. This will put you on medication real fast. Folks, we'll say more about this next week, but the Bible is often to be taken literally, and I'll give you many examples, but it's not always to be taken literally. That's silly. It uses lots of figurative language. The key is to know when. So uh, I hope you know you're not going to meet a risen Savior one day with seven horns and seven eyes, okay? Now, let's just pause there. Based on what you've learned so far about this style of literature, this genre called apocalyptic, based on what you've learned about that numbers don't mean arithmetic, numbers represent ideas. What is God saying here? How would those first century Christians who are suffering like crazy under the heel of Rome, having loved ones put to death, fed to lions, banished to the mines, how would they have heard this? Well, first you've got to know what a horn means. A horn consistently in this literature and to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, it represents power. Of King David in Psalm 130, it says his horn will be lifted high in honor. Consistently, a horn means power. The key to understanding this is the Old Testament. And eyes, typically, like in 2 Chronicles 16:9, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. It represents knowledge. And there's seven. Seven horns, seven eyes. We've learned that represents something in its essence. It's the number for deity or perfection. So, so the first century Christian would have immediately said, God is telling us that in spite of our troubles and persecution, in spite of how bad things look, we serve a risen Lord who has perfect power and perfect omniscience and is fully worthy of our complete devotion and worship. So don't give up. Keep on going. That's the message. We've often over-exegeted all of that. That's the message. Hang on. God's still in control. He has perfect power, perfect knowledge. He knows what you're going through. Hang in there. What? A message of comfort that must have been, and it should be to us as well. Verse 7 says, he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. 
Each one had a harp, and they were holding gold, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They had circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. By the way, just a little fun fact, in these little doxologies that you see throughout this book, like this one, notice there are usually seven ascriptions of praise, seven kinds of adjectival words that describe who God is. Notice there are seven there. Did you count them? Seven. Power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, praise. Seven. Again, it's just all kind of put together real neat with this apocalyptic theme. The numbers carry ideas. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now we're almost done, but before we wrap this up, I want you to see, church, the two big themes of chapters four and five. If you're writing them down, you might want to write this down. They are creation and redemption. Here's what I mean. In chapter four is seen the power of God as creator. That's chapter four. The power of God as creator. And in chapter five is seen the love of God as redeemer. He's worshiped in chapter 4 as creator. You're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created. That's why you're worthy, for you created all things. And in chapter 5, he's worshiped as redeemer. You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. Chapter 4 for creation, chapter 5 for his redeeming work. Now, by the way, the great songwriters throughout history have usually captured both of those themes. I'll give one example of one of my favorite hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Remember verse 2 of Great is Thy Faithfulness? Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness mercy and love. That's talking about God as creator. And all of creation's getting into the scene. Then, then verse 3 of great is thy faithfulness, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for the day and bright hope for the morrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Why is there pardon for sin? Because of chapter 5. Right there in that one hymn, it captures both of these. We're praising God for his faithfulness in creation. We're praising God for his faithfulness in redemption. All worship carries those two themes. Now, I don't know where you are today in your journey, but I do know this. 
unless you're a strange creature indeed, you got some struggles. Just as I know something about you that you're a worshiper because it's just the human instinct to put your hope in something and then to begin to chase after that, I also know that this human experience is going to involve struggle. And I just want to say to you today that my experience has been when I am feeling overwhelmed, literally like I cannot go on, when I have been, and it's happened so many times, I'd be shocked if this hasn't happened to most of you, where you're just kind of at the end of your rope and you feel like, man, I don't know where to turn. Time after time after time, I've gotten on my knees in my office. I've gotten alone in the house. I've walked through the woods in the middle of nowhere and just began to sing to God and begin to worship him for who he is and begin to give him what he's worth. And it is amazing how the fears, how the chains of anxiety begin to fall away. It's amazing how things begin to be put in perspective. Is it some little psychological trick? It's seeing what he's worth and then beginning to give him what he's worth. Whatever your problems are, the prescription is in part to worship. Now, here's the final thing I want to say to you, though. Here's the problem. Here's the kicker about it all when you boil it all down. You know the problem with this worship thing? When you feel like it the least, it's when you need it the most. Can I just be honest with you? When you feel like it the least is usually when you need it the most. You say, I don't feel like worshiping. There's nothing. There's no joy in me right now. There's no. We, we just will ourselves to begin to worship God, and he begins to change all that. It may not happen in a moment, but when you become a worshiper of the living God, I want to tell you, everything begins to change. That's my story. That's my testimony, and there are scores of people all around you right now who could stand and give the same word of testimony. When I see God for who he is and put my focus on him and begin to give him what he's worth, God begins to change things. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to actually do that together. Now, I want you to know, worship is a lot more than singing songs. I hope we understand that. Worship is giving God what he's worth with your whole life, with your time, with your relationships, with your influence, with every gift he's given. Worship is a lifestyle thing, but it also includes times like this when we together sing to the Lord. That's worship also. And that's what we're going to do now. Our team is going to come, and we're going to worship him together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are creator and redeemer. Thank you that we can put our hope in you and never be disappointed. And while all the things that we try to chase in this world will leave us disillusioned and empty, I thank you that you will never let us down. So we worship you now. We give you our whole lives because you are worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.